Today is Independence Day. A lot of us associate independence with America's independence from British rule, but there are plenty of ways to look at it. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're looking at independence from various perspectives, including a kid's independence from the diaper. They become more independent and confident and they make decisions and they don't, you know, it's the first time in their lives that they don't need someone else to tell them what to do and when to do it and where to do it. They get to decide on their own. But first, let's step back into history, specifically the time of the Revolutionary War. I'm Karen Quinones and I'm the owner of Patriot Tours. I give historic walking tours of Lower Manhattan. Philadelphia and Boston often hog the spotlight when it comes to Revolutionary War history, but New York City has a rich history all its own, doesn't it, Karen? New York does, and I guess because of New York's financial history, the political history kind of gets a little ignored. But when David McCullough wrote his famous book, 1776, I think it's in the foreword of the book that he says when he um, researched for that year, he wasn't aware that he would be primarily writing about the city of New York. What was New York City like under British occupation? Well, it was great under British rule, and it was really hard to get people to turn against the crown. I mean, if you think about it, people are living with the full protection of the British Constitution. You know, if you're arrested, you have the right to an open bail hearing, a public trial. The British Army and Navy are protecting you, and you're doing pretty much whatever you want to because the king can't enforce the laws over here anyway because it's so big. So they're really living a good life. So when it came time to convince people to turn against the crown, it was a hard sell. How large was the population about back then? Well, in 1765, which is 10 years before the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, it was about 12,500. But when the war breaks out, it's doubled to 25,000. So the city is growing rapidly because New York, kind of like today, was a magnet for people from all different types of places. So who were the biggest voices here in the city pushing for independence? The biggest voices are going to be the traditional, you could say, rivals of the British, the Scots, the Irish, the Dutch, and pretty much everyone was here who was here before the British arrived in 1664. Also people who are not members of the Church of England, you know, who um, are used to religious freedom here in New York, and people who are just plain sick of the crown telling them what they can manufacture, what they have to buy, who they can buy it from, taxing everything, and they're just totally sick of it. And they believe that everything that's good here, they've done themselves with no help from the crown, and therefore have proved they really don't need the crown. Now, when I called you up to do this interview, you said meet me at City Hall Park. Why City Hall Park? Well, City Hall Park has a special significance for July 4th because it was here at what we today call City Hall Park, or then the Old Town Commons, where General George Washington had the Declaration of Independence read to his army. So he had the Declaration of Independence read to his army. He also fought here in New York and lost here in New York. He won in Boston, but lost the Battle of Brooklyn. Exactly. And, and you know, some of his uh, officers, um, when he wanted to come to defend New York, warned him not to do it. You know, Henry Knox tells him, New York is all water and islands. The king has the finest navy in all this world, and we have none. He says, New York cannot be defended, and we don't have enough men to lose any in its defense. The king will have it. Let him take it. Um, unfortunately, the Congress vote to defend New York. So by the summer of 1776, General Washington is here. Um, General William Howe on the side of the British and his brother, Lord Admiral Richard, 
Richard Howe are both here, and they're all lining up for a massive battle that will be the battle for New York. At some point, Washington withdrew from New York. He left here altogether. What happened there? He did on um, September uh, 21st, 1776, after a series of losses and really kind of not even losses, but retreating from the British again and again at various battles, um, decided it was better to get off the island of Manhattan, so he crossed. Now, there are some people who say that Washington left temporarily, that his intent was to return to New York and retake it. Others say no, that more um, current scholarship says no, he just had given up New York and went on his way. But whichever way, New York was held by the British until November of 1783, so more than seven years. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that, that the British remained remained in New York two years after Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown to General Washington until all of the treaties were signed, all the T's were crossed, I's were dotted, as we might say. Um, so this was the last land that the British returned to us. So when Washington retreated from New York, did people citizens also retreat, leave the city? Yeah, there was kind of a, um, a massive relocation of people. So anyone that we might today call a patriot or they at that time would call a rebel um, would have left during that time, or many of them really left um, the summer of 1776 when the battle was going on. Coming into the city would have been people loyal to the crown, thinking that being under British occupation, they would be better protected during the war. One pivotal moment here in New York City was the demolition of the statue of King George III at the Bowling Green. Tell us about that. That's right. July 9th, 1776 is the day the Declaration of Independence is read, and um, I think it's about 6 o'clock in the evening. Washington gathers the army up here on the then commons. Um, many New Yorkers gather as well, and they get so wound up over those radical words in the Declaration that they charge straight down the Broadway, which was the main street, um, to the Bowling Green, where there stood an equestrian statue of George III. They tore down the statue. They knocked all of the crowns off of the fence surrounding the statue, and it was melted for around 42,000 musket balls. They said they'd gladly return the statue to the king. How many physical reminders do we have here in the city of New York during the 1700s? We don't have a whole lot, especially here in lower Manhattan. We have um, the fence around the Bowling Green with the top still uneven from when they whacked off the crowns. Nearby we have Francis Tavern, which is a reproduction of the original building, but a very faithful reproduction of a Georgian-era mansion. And we have St. Paul's Chapel here at Broadway and Bessie Street, which is uh, fully intact from 1766. And for lower Manhattan, that's about it. You mentioned France's Tavern. Now, George Washington gave his farewell address there, right? He did. Um, in December of 1783, he met on the second floor in what they referred to as the Long Room with his commanders, and uh, he gave his farewell address. It was the last time that Washington and his commanders were all in one place at the same time. Recount when New York actually did officially sign the document, the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's still kind of up for debate among people. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people know, especially from that great musical 1776, that New York wouldn't debate or vote on the Declaration of Independence. Some of the guys who went to the Continental Congress refused to sign it. But ultimately, it's believed in August of 1776, the four signers from New York did sign maybe um, around the White Plains area somewhere. What else do you like to point out about New York City's Revolutionary War history? 
Well, it's just really fantastic. I mean, New York was um, the center of uh, colonial commerce at that time, definitely a political hotbed with people just like today having all kinds of different political opinions. Um, there was already a free press established in New York, so I really encourage people to come to New York, um, learn more about New York's history, read books like 1776, and just get a better idea of how um, important New York was to our history, other than just making money, which is okay, but there's a little bit more than just that. The establishment of a free press is a pretty big deal in New York's history, isn't it? It is, and it occurs, most people don't know, in 1735 with the trial of a printer, John Peter Zenger. What about the history of fireworks in New York City? How much do you know about that? I don't know much about fireworks, except I do know that the building we're standing next to, the City Hall, when they had the party for the laying of the transatlantic cable in the late 1750s, they set off fireworks and burned the dome on the City Hall. So the dome we see today is actually a replacement dome. Karen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, George. Happy 4th. Same to you. That was Karen Quinones. She's the owner and guide of Patriot Tours here in New York City. You can learn more at patriottoursnyc.com. Independence can also be very personal. People with disabilities can struggle to live independently. The Center for Independence of the Disabled works to assist people with disabilities to achieve their goals. I talked with its executive director, Susan Duha. Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. A pleasure. So what is the mission of the organization? Sydney is dedicated to improving the lives of people with disabilities by removing barriers, which might be physical barriers or they might be attitudinal barriers, that prevent people with disabilities from enjoying the same social, economic, cultural, and civic life that the rest of the community enjoys. What are among the biggest challenges right now standing in the way of disabled New Yorkers living as independently as possible? People with disabilities are are far more likely to be living deep in poverty on a long-term basis. They are far less likely to have high school diplomas or college diplomas they are significantly less likely to be employed. They are often very, very burdened with the costs of daily living, rent, food, utilities, phones, and so on, and need financial assistance to get by. What can really make a difference in the life of someone with a disability is learning to become an effective self-advocate, getting a good education, and gaining employment experience. Um, However, even when employed, people with disabilities have lower median household incomes than people without disabilities. Why is that? I think that it's a combination of things. Uh, For one thing, I think people with disabilities are too often concentrated in low-wage, bottom-rung jobs. For example, people with disabilities' top 10 occupations include maids, housekeepers, uh, janitors, and building personnel, home care workers, which is a different roster of occupations than for people without disabilities. So that's one thing. They're more likely to be employed... um, part-time to be underemployed and to be paid less than people without disabilities. Is that the result of the attitudinal issues that you referenced earlier? 
I think in part, I think it's in part because of the failure of our schools to help people with disabilities achieve equality in education. I think it's in part because of the legacy of segregation where people without disabilities who might be employers or coworkers have uh, not had a lot of experience, you know, living with, uh, working with, learning with people with disabilities and so feel uncomfortable and feel that people with disabilities are not like them that they will be uncomfortable in the workplace or that they should have less expectations of people with disabilities than people without disabilities. And these kinds of attitudinal barriers are a real inhibitor of employment for people with disabilities. So what kinds of programs does Sydney offer to people living with disabilities to help them overcome these challenges? Well, Sydney works with individuals to develop an individualized roadmap to achieving the goals the individual has brought to us. So someone might come to us with a goal of obtaining health coverage or solving transportation problems or ensuring that they get an education and get the reasonable accommodations they're entitled to under federal civil rights law in the educational environment or the employment environment. And we help them by developing a plan with them that is their plan that they sign off on that says, here are the things they're going to do towards achieving their goals, and here's how we're going to help. And we work step by step towards what opportunities are available to improve their lives or stabilize their lives. What would you say have been among your biggest successes? Oh, my goodness. Well, we love the fact that we get to work with individuals who are able to leave nursing facilities where they, as young people, have been relegated because no one has the expectation that they can survive in the community. When we've helped them to transfer to the community and to integrate into the community, it has been phenomenally rewarding. It's also very rewarding to work with teenagers who are aging out or who are graduating from high school and who are facing adult life and wondering what their lives will be like as adults with disabilities. How, what are their rights? How do they present themselves to employers and how to get involved in the community? And we do peer modeling for them. We have adults with disabilities who work with them to help them work through those issues. That is extremely satisfying work. We also do a lot of advocacy work, and we have been very excited by many of our victories over the years and are engaged in some struggles now that I think are going to be very rewarding. Which struggles in particular? Well, we are the plaintiff in successful landmark litigation in the federal court system that is now requiring New York City to plan for inclusion of people with disabilities when disasters strike. In the past, the city has not thought about people with disabilities when it's done its emergency preparedness and disaster response planning. That being said, what did you see during events like Superstorm Sandy and 9-11? Well, we saw that people were physically unable to access recovery resources 
in the recovery center after September 11th. And we wrote a monograph about the experiences of people with disabilities on and after September 11th called Lessons Learned. Since then, we tracked very closely what was happening with people with disabilities during blizzards, during power outages, during summer heat waves, and then during Hurricanes Irene and Hurricane Sandy. And we found that people were unable to evacuate because there wasn't enough accessible transportation, and it was shut down very early. We found that people were locked out of shelters, and even those shelters that they could get into were not helping them in the way that they helped others, were not uh, trained, the staff and the volunteers were not trained on how to make sure, for example, that somebody who uses a power wheelchair had access to an outlet so that they could recharge their equipment, or somebody with medications had refrigeration so their medications would not go bad. These were very, very dramatic experiences that we had, and we fielded calls and made calls to many of the 116,000 people with disabilities in the hurricane zones and heard story after story about how they'd been left behind by the city of New York. I'm thrilled to say that we now have a landmark decision because of the stories that we told that will help people with disabilities in the future have somewhere to go and a way to get there and the services that they need to survive the storms as well as anyone else. Susan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was Susan Duha. She's the executive director of the Center for Independence of the Disabled, also known as Sydney. To learn more, visit CIDNY.org. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Today is July 4th, so we're devoting this episode of Cityscape to the idea of independence. When you're a little kid, independence pretty much starts here. Samantha Allen is the founder of NYC Potty Training, an organization that helps to get kids out of their diapers and going to the potty on their own. Samantha, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So at what age should potty training start? I believe that you should start when the child exhibits readiness. Most recent research shows 27 to 32 months is the ideal time to get it done. But as long as the child is demonstrating some sort of control by staying dry for one to two hours and showing that they have some awareness of what's going on. They may indicate when they're wet or soiled, or they may seek out a private spot to eliminate. Those are the signs that you should look for. And the child, I believe, should definitely be able to walk by themselves to the bathroom and pull down their pants and climb up onto the toilet. Pretty important part of it, no doubt. Yes. (laughs) You have to be able to get there in order to be able to do it. So what's involved in the potty training process? I teach the child to be as independent as possible. Um, It's a different experience for each child. It's very individualized for each child and their family and what they need to learn the skill. A lot of practice, you know, definitely we give a lot of liquids because the more times you practice any skill, whether it's tennis or math or going potty, the quicker you learn. And I just keep them successful throughout the day and independent. That's the key. How did you get into the potty training business? I was working with children ages two to five for over a decade and During those years, obviously, potty training is something that always came up, and I potty trained students for a long time, 
And um, after a while, I was working with some students in their mainstream classrooms. And um, I would give the teacher a heads up that, you know, I'd be training my student after school that day. So they would be in underwear coming to school the next day. And that everyone would laugh and say, oh, Sam, not in a day. <laughs> and, you know, I came to realize that this is something that was I was getting done rather quickly. And parents started seeking me out because word spread that I was good at this skill. So um, it sort of happened organically. I was going to ask you that question, when is it okay to go cold turkey, meaning ditch the diapers and go straight to underwear? The day you begin. When you start to begin, you just throw away all those diapers. And that's it. Really? Back. Mm-hmm. Throw caution to the wind. Absolutely. How, if at all, have the techniques for potty training a child evolved over the years? That's a really good question. I know many years ago and still um, in some countries, um, elimination communication is popular, which is training a child from when they're an infant. And I think that that has certainly changed as time con- has gone on and diapers have been made better and there are now pull-ups which I think have delayed the potty training age the average potty training age so children on on average are trained a lot later than they used to be how old is too old is there such a thing the research shows that before age two and after age three you can um, have three times the rate of constipation issues or um, you know over age three you can have some more power struggles with it. But, you know, if it's not yet done, you, it's never too late to get it done. What do you see in a child in terms of how independent they feel, how good they feel about themselves when they are indeed potty trained? That is my favorite part of every day. I typically start training at 10, 11 in the morning, and by 3 in the afternoon, every single one of them independently says, tells me when they have to go, and they march themselves to the bathroom, and they are so proud of that accomplishment and that they did it by themselves that there's nothing like it. And you can really see it carry over to they become more independent and confident and they make decisions. And, they don't, you know, it's the first time in their lives that they don't need someone else to tell them what to do and when to do it and where to do it. They get to decide on their own. Why do you find that parents come to you for your services? I think that potty training is something that's it's a challenge. You know, the, the parent and the child have a relationship, the child's entire life, where, you know, the child meets, I mean, the parent meets the child's needs and the, ch- the parent, you know, removes things that are scary or unpleasant. And, you know, this is something, it's a big change. And, you know, a, a child may not like it and the, the parent wants to, they want to comfort their child. But at the same time, it, it's a fine line between comforting them and reinforcing, you know, escape or avoidance behaviors. And often this is something where power struggles begin to emerge. Samantha, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Samantha Allen is the founder of NYC Potty Training. They're online at nycpottytraining.com. The 4th of July would not be the same without Macy's big fireworks show in New York City. The Macy's team works all year to bring us a fantastic celebration. I talked with the event's creative director, Wesley Watley. Wesley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy 4th of July. To you, too. So how long have you been involved with the Macy's 4th of July fireworks? This summer will be my 13th show with Macy's. Wow. So what's involved with putting it all together? Oh, so many things are involved. Um, We started the show 
development about a year ago. As soon as the last shell goes off on the July 4th show, we start the next year. And um, as creative director, part of my job is to come up with the spark of an idea that then leads the whole process for a full year. And uh, there's so many things involved. We develop the music. Uh, one thing that's very unique about the Macy's show, as our uh, as New Yorkers know, is the music is perfectly synced with the pyro in the sky. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of preparation. So um, things that are involved, we develop the music first, then we choreograph all that pyro and then tonight, the final product will be in the sky. So take us inside your mind, if you will. What were you thinking about when you were putting tonight's activities together? Sure. Well, I think what started with this year is the word brave. The title of the show is called Brave. And, and we, we started with that because we wanted to salute this year uh, the brave men and women of our armed forces. Certainly, we wouldn't have our independence without uh, the armed services and while there are lots of holidays that celebrate the military, we really felt like uh, it would be a special night tonight to do that. So we started with Brave and uh, went down to D.C., actually, to the United States Air Force Band and invited them to lay out 25 minutes of orchestral music for the score. Uh, Macy's always starts with the music. And we put that music together, and then that was in January. Actually, we recorded the orchestra and then started laying some very special vocals down uh, up until March. And then uh, the pyro design happened after that. So it's been a full year of preparation so far. And music legends Emilio and Gloria Estefan are represented in that score this year, right? Totally. That's really probably, I think for me, it's the highlight tonight. Uh, Toward the very end of the show, it's when we throw some of our biggest shells into the sky. We're going to feature a brand new original song written by multi-Grammy award-winning Gloria Estefan and, of course, her husband, Emilio, they have prepared an American anthem, and it is a stunning song. That is, this will be the first time it's ever been aired, and it, of course, has the United States Air Force Band and Orchestra, but we also brought in a little New York as well. We have a VH1 Save the Music's school, Park Place Community School from Brooklyn, New York, uh, they are serving as Gloria's backup on this song. The song's called America, and it's uh, it's going to be a total treat. I think fans of Gloria far and wide are going to love this original song. And, um, yeah, we're really, really pumped. It's going to be the big highlight uh, moment in the show. Just how many pyrotechnic shells are involved in your display? Hmm. Well, we have the largest show in the country. We have over 50,000 shells and effects that happen over the sky. This year, we have, we're shooting, we're firing from two different locations. We have a double barge just south of the Brooklyn Bridge, and then we have four barges in Midtown over the East River in the 20s and 30s. Tons of effects, 50,000. I mean, it's, it's a massive show, always a massive. This year, we've got some really special things happening, some surprises that I will just let to be a surprise tonight. But one of my favorite things, actually, we have this new shell. It's a multicolored transformation ghost shell, which explodes and then it fades into a different color left to right and then back into another color right to left. Uh, just some stuff that's never been seen over the, over New York sky, uh, over the river before. So we're really, really excited to surprise the audience tonight. How much thought goes into the big finish? That's usually when I get goosebumps when I'm watching <laughs> the fireworks display. Well, it's a lot of strategy, actually. We want to we wanna lead up to the finale, 
and show a big, exciting finale. And then we usually surprise everyone with another finale and then another finale. So we want to emotionally get there. I think first we start with the music, as I said. So we have an emotional moment that really takes the, takes the level and the intensity up a notch. And then we have a break, and then we'll go again into a different kind of emotional moment and fill the sky with a different kind of shell. And then our grand finale is always God Bless America, and that's the very, very end. So you'll watch for it tonight. You'll think the show ends, and then we'll end it again, and then we'll probably end it again. Are you able to truly enjoy the show, or are you pretty much critiquing it, biting your nails, hoping everything is going okay? I do enjoy it. This is one event that we do at Macy's where once the countdown happens, the pyro is synced, the computers go on, and it's all self-propelled. So the work has been done at that point. And what's really gratifying for all of us at Macy's is that we just get to enjoy it for 25 minutes we get to look to the sky and really see all of our hard work over the last year come to fruition. There are a couple other moments in the show, some of my favorites that I'd love to quickly highlight. Not only are Gloria and Emilio performing, uh, but we also have a couple major artists. We have country legend Rodney Atkins singing America the Beautiful. And perhaps one of my favorite moments I want everyone to give a listen to, uh, we've rearranged My Country Tis of Thee. And gospel legend and Grammy Award winner Cece Winans has lent her vocal. We really reinterpreted that song into a ballad, and it's going to be this beautiful, emotional moment with multicolored waterfalls in the sky. It's going to be stirring and heartfelt. Our eyes will be on the sky tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We hope everyone enjoys the show. Happy Fourth of July. Wesley Watley is the creative director of the Macy's Fourth of July fireworks extravaganza. If you can't watch it in person, you can watch it on television. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Happy Fourth of July. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.